You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. In the last podcast, I had asked him what year the first computer hard drive was invented. You didn't know it at the time, but I was already planning for this to be a two-part question. So here's the other half. The team that developed the hard drive at IBM was headed by a man named Reynold B. Johnson. And today's question of the day has to do with another invention that Johnson created. Do you know what it is? And here are your choices. Was it one, the automated exam scoring machine? Two, the automatic coffee machine? Three, the magnetic stripe on the back of your credit card. Four, the remote car starter. Or five, the television remote control. Again, which invention did Reynolds B. Johnson create? Was it one, the automated exam scoring machine? Two, the automatic coffee machine? Three, the magnetic stripe on the back of credit cards? Four, the remote car starter? Or five, the television remote control? So can you name his invention? I'll let you think about it for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer later in this podcast. I was just telling my students the other day that my favorite television show of all time was The Twilight Zone. In particular, I love the 1959 episode Time Enough at Last, which stars the late Burgess Meredith. Now, just in case you don't know the story, Meredith plays a bank teller named Henry Bemis, and he just loves to read, but everyone around him prevents him from doing just that. So during his lunch break one day, he heads down to the bank's vault in search of a peaceful place to read. And that's when an atomic bomb goes off and life ends for everyone except Henry Bemis. He's now alone in a post-apocalyptic world and now has plenty of time on his hands. And the best thing, the very best thing of all, is there's time now. There's all the time I need and all the time I want. Time, time, time. Ah, there's time enough at last. Well, I won't give away how the story ends for those who've never seen it, but let's just say it ends with the usual Twilight Zone twist. Now, around the same time that this episode ran on TV, Scott Newhall, who was the editor of the San Francisco Chronicle at the time, wondered what would happen, you know, if in fact someone really was the last person on Earth. His real inspiration came from the stories of Swiss family Robinson and Robinson Crusoe, but the same basic question remained. Could modern man survive in the rubble of a ruined world? To find out, they recruited their hunting and fishing columnist. That was 41-year-old Bud Boyd. And the plan was simply to drop him into the mountains somewhere with virtually no supplies and see if he could survive. You know, kind of like modern-day Survivor Man. But Boyd decided to make it even more challenging. He brought his family along. Now, I know that sounds like a crazy idea, but, you know, they're trying to sell papers. 
In addition to the Chronicle, 41 other newspapers across the United States signed up to follow Bud's story. So on June 28th of 1960, Bud, his 44-year-old wife Betty, their daughters, that's 15-year-old Susan and 12-year-old Sharon, and son 8-year-old Bruce were flown in a DC-3 to the Marble Mountains in northwestern California. After eating a fried chicken lunch, pack horses carried the family to a remote camp beside Lipstick Lake. And all they're allowed to take with them, get this, was one axe, a 50-foot or 15-meter clothesline, a ball of white nylon twine, some salt, and one pocket knife for each of them. Other than the clothes on their back, nothing else was allowed. There were no guns, blankets, tents, sleeping bags, foods, matches, and so on. They were going to live off the land, and they planned to do it for six weeks. One thing that wasn't mentioned in the promotions leading up to this adventure was just how Bud was going to do his reporting. Well, it turns out he's going to do it the old-fashioned way, with pencil and paper. As Bud finished each story, he was going to place him in an agreed-upon spot, and then every couple of days the owner of the ranch would ride up to collect them. Since the publisher had no idea when the stories would actually arrive, they planned to publish them undated seven days later, although it did end up being a longer period than that. From the very minute the family set camp, things just started to go downhill. Very quickly, a beautiful day turned stormy. Bud was able to construct a crude lean-to just before the sky opened up to release a torrent of rain and hail over their heads, and they became soaked to the bones. But as soon as it cleared, it was right back to work. It took quite some time, but Bud was able to start a fire to keep them warm. But he had made no attempt to get food. Luckily, they had snuck in two sandwiches for each of them. He ended his first post of the paper with the sentence, quote, scared to death. Their first night in the wild didn't go much better. They huddled together to stay warm, and as Bud dozed off, the fire started to die out. Suddenly, Betty woke Bud up and said, Something's out there! So Bud grabbed the flashlight out of their emergency kit. Yeah, I know, it's another item not on their approved list of supplies, and he shined it into the darkness. He didn't see anything, but the loud crackling of the brush led him to conclude that it was a bear. On their second day, Bud set forth on building a better shelter. But this was very time-consuming, and it meant he didn't have time to hunt or gather up any food. And with the sandwiches now eaten and everyone hungry, Bud knew what he had to do next. It was on the third day that he set out to catch trout, which proved to be quite difficult as he didn't have the proper equipment. He had no fishing equipment. Of course, the forest is loaded with lots of branches, so creating a fishing pole was a fairly simple task. Then he unravels some twine, you know, for fishing line. And here's the ingenious part. For a hook, he broke one of his daughter Sharon's rings and bent it into shape. And he used the flashing of the ring's stone to act as a lure. And although it was difficult, he eventually caught seven trout. Dandelion stems and skunk cabbage tubers were also gathered to add some veggies to their diet. Of course, they didn't have a pot to cook in nor did they have any type of container to carry water back from the lake to their campsite. As for toilet paper, forget it. Moss was their best option. And to solve those, you know, feminine sanitary needs, a bandana was cut into strips and washed as needed. 
Late on the fifth day, they were once again awoken by a black bear. So Bug grabbed the flashlight, which was next to the, quote, sealed rifle. Huh? What? Yeah, you heard it correctly. They had packed a rifle all along. And it was really just there for emergency, and they never did use it. But I was starting to think that maybe they should have. Their food problem may have been solved. There was a big setback on the sixth day. The fishing line broke, and the hook that they had fashioned out of the ring was lost. So the best solution that Buck could come up with was to carve a new hook from a piece of manzanita wood. And that really did work, but it presented him with a new problem. That is, that wood absorbs water, and eventually it softens to the point where it becomes unusable. Day 8 was a lucky day for the family, and that's because a hunter's stash was discovered. It was really just a bunch of garbage, but when you have so little, this is like finding the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. They now had an old skillet, a coffee can, an aluminum cup, a plate and spoon, an old Wesson oil bottle, and a piece of canvas. So now they can really cook up a storm. Of course, that assumes they can collect up enough food. But they couldn't. One can only live off trout, frogs, and a few veggies for so long. Their main problem was that they had camped at too high of an elevation, so it was very cold and food was scarce. So the decision was made on day 10 to move the camp. They followed a stream to a new location, which is about 1,000 feet or 300 meters lower in elevation. And the new camp was better in every way. It had a warmer climate, wild fruits and vegetables were more plentiful, and there was an abundance of wildlife, which of course could be trapped and consumed. But it was too late. They were all getting sick. Betty and Bud both suffered from stomach cramps, and this is followed by Susan getting ill and finally Bruce. The family was faced with a tough decision. Should they stay or should they go? Ultimately, they decided to leave. So Bud hiked 6 miles or 9.6 kilometers to the nearest ranch. There, the rancher saddled up six horses and packed them with supplies before heading up to rescue the family. And it must have seemed like a feast to finally be able to eat bacon, eggs, potatoes, peanut butter and jelly, watermelon, and dried fruits for the first time in nearly two weeks. After 12 days of a planned six-week experiment, it was all over. They were taken back to civilization on July 10th. But this wasn't good news for the San Francisco Chronicle. That's because they hadn't even run one single story on the family's adventures at that point, and they had all this money tied up in it. The series, believe it or not, was scheduled to start the very next day, so the decision was made to go forward with it. They just had Bud and the family hide out a bit. Day after day, the syndicated story would appear in the papers across the country, just as if the family was still up there in the woods. Coinciding with the first day of publication of the stories was an article titled, Boyd's Camping John Exposed, and that appeared on the front page of the competing San Francisco Examiner. Their ace reporter, Ed Montgomery, had located the Boyd's camp shortly after they abandoned it, and there he found used food cans, burned matches, soap, toilet paper, soda bottle caps, sugar, spaghetti and beef tins, watermelon rinds, shells from fresh eggs, and more. Montgomery's find implied that the Boyds had not really been roughing it at all. Of course, as I mentioned, Bud claimed to have gone for help at the end of their 11th day, 
But that segment of the story ran the national papers days after the examiner story exposing the fraud appeared. You know, one can't help but wonder if Bud wrote that piece after the examiner story was published. The San Francisco Chronicle filed a $1.5 million lawsuit against the examiner and its owner, Hearst Publishing Company. They charged that Montgomery's article was, quote, malicious, false, and defamatory. Bud Boyd and his family also sued the examiner for an additional $605,000. One thing that Boyd had on his side was that there were three impartial observers who had accompanied the family to the point where they first entered the woods. They were Stanley Mosk, who was California's Attorney General, Reverend Francis J. Ford, who was an Air Force Reserve Chaplain, and Rear Admiral A.G. Cook, who served as San Francisco's Civil Defense Chief. These are not the kind of guys that would lie. And all three later said that they were convinced that this was an honest experiment. On April 6th of 1962, both papers ran identical stories stating that, that all suits were being dismissed. Bud never admitted whether he had hoaxed the public or not. His editor Scott Newhall stated in his biography that, quote, I think this story was legitimate. So what do you think? Sadly, Bud passed away on August 18th of 1971 at the age of 52, so we'll never know for sure. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Attention homemakers, now you don't need a mixing bowl to color margarine. The sensational new Dell Rich Easy Color Pack Margarine ends mixing bowl mess. With Dell Rich, the margarine and color berry are both inside a sealed plastic bag. You simply pinch the berry, then gently knead the bag. And Dell Rich quickly blends to a luscious golden color inside the bag. And listen, the delicious country sweet flavor and freshness of Dell Rich are sealed in. It's truly America's finest margarine. Ask for the new Delrich Easy Color Pack margarine tomorrow. That commercial for Delrich Easy Color Margarine is from the December 28, 1947 episode of Nick Carter, Master Detective. If you're wondering why anyone would ever color their margarine, wonder no more. Not long after margarine was invented in 1869, dairy farmers became concerned that their livelihood would be threatened by an artificial butter product. So the powerful dairy lobby started working aggressively to get laws passed to keep margarine from gaining a foothold on their market. The U.S. Congress passed the Margarine Act in 1886, and that placed a $0.02 per pound tax on margarine, $600 per year for the license to manufacture it, 
and $48 per year to retail it. Now, two cents per pound may not seem like much, but that would be about 52 cents per pound today. But the federal government did a poor job of enforcing the law, so it fell back on the individual states to come up with their own regulations. They found that the easiest way to keep people from buying margarine was to make sure it didn't look like butter at all. And that's because margarine is typically white in color, so the rich yellow color had to be added. By 1930, states had banned the coloring of artificial butter, and some states even required that it be dyed an unappetizing pink color to make sure that no one would ever buy it. But as you know, there's always a loophole. The law did not ban consumers themselves from dyeing their white margarine any color they wish it to be. You want green, blue, lavender, pink, whatever, that's your choice. And that's where Delrich Easy Color Margarine comes in. Each bag of white margarine had a small color packet that was about the size of a berry built into it. All the housewife had to do was pinch the coloring packet to burst it open and then simply knead the margarine until the color was completely dispersed. And voila, you have yellow margarine. Eventually, many of these margarine laws were repealed and it became legal to sell yellow margarine. But believe it or not, a few of these laws are still on the books, although they are rarely enforced. In other news, here are a few stories that involve transportation in some way. In August of 1948, a 30-year-old Indianapolis resident named Marjorie Boyer had been a passenger on a bus operated by the Indiana Motor Bus Company. Suddenly she fainted, so the driver, a guy named Floyd Irwin, lifted her and placed her on the ground under the shade of a tree to recuperate. What a nice thing to do. But the next thing you know, she filed a $1,000, or about $10,000 today, she filed a $1,000 damage suit against the bus company. Why? Because she'd been wearing a low back sundress that day. And when the driver placed her on the ground, he failed to recognize that there was a patch of poison ivy there. On March 29th of 1949, a jury ruled against her. So how's this for a bizarre sequence of events? On April 4th of 1958, it was reported that a car driven by Sacramento, California resident John Wilkie swerved out of control to avoid hitting a little girl that ran out into the street. Sadly, the car hit a 14-year-old boy named Philip Nemeth, who had been riding his bicycle at the time. The 9-year-old girl, Teresa Miller, feared that she had caused the boy's death and ran back to her house and swallowed lye concentrate, you know, that's drain cleaner, in an effort to kill herself. Her mother realized what Teresa had done and quickly drove her to the hospital for treatment, but the car stalled along the way. Luckily, a lineman from the telephone company noticed what had happened and climbed the nearest telephone pole, hooked up his handset to tap into the phone line, and then contacted the highway patrol. They dispatched a patrol car and rushed Teresa to the hospital. Both Teresa and Philip were reported to be on the mend at the time the story was originally published. And finally, it was reported on January 25th, 1961, that three-year-old Eddie Jones was being sued for $50,000. That'd be about $390,000 today for reckless driving. Remember, he's three years old. His vehicle of choice, his tricycle. Yes, you heard that correctly. It seems that Bertha Wolf, who was employed as a maid in the Jones household, was struck by the tricycle on August 26th of 1960. She claimed that she had, quote, suffered extensive injuries and mental anguish. The suit, filed by Bertha's husband, Homer Wolf, in federal court, 
claimed that, quote, little Eddie, who was on his tricycle, gathered a full head of steam and without any warning yell of any nature, propelled his tricycle with great force into the body of Bertha Wolf while her back was turned. I was unable to find out any further information on the story, but I think it's safe to assume that little Eddie eventually grew up and he probably got a real driver's license. And now for the answer to the question of the day. I had asked which invention did Reynold B. Johnson, that's the guy who headed up the hard disk drive development team at IBM, which other invention did he create? Was it one, the automated exam scoring machine, two, the automatic coffee machine, three, the magnetic stripe on the back of credit cards, four, the remote car starter, or five, the television remote control? So which one did you choose? I hope that you chose choice number one, the automated exam scoring machine. Yes, he is the one ultimately responsible for all those bubble sheets and number two pencils that you use throughout your entire education. You see, back in 1931, Johnson was a physics teacher in Ironwood, Michigan, and he needed a faster way to grade his students' papers, so he started experimenting with a machine that could detect pencil marks on paper, which of course would be compared with an answer key. Johnson was hired by IBM in 1934 to further develop his invention, which resulted in the first commercial model. That was called the IBM 805 Test Scoring Machine. What an original name. It could grade up to 800 tests per hour, and its first large-scale use was by the New York State Regents in 1936. Now, if you talk to any teacher or student today, they'll most likely call these tests Scantrons, which is a later brand of automated test scoring. At one point, Scantron had a virtual monopoly on school testing because they gave the machines to the schools for free. The catch was that you had to buy the expensive answer sheets through them. Now, we still do have a Scantron machine in the school that I teach in, but I can't remember the last time that I saw somebody actually use it. And that's because we now have a photocopy machine that scans the test and then it's sent digitally elsewhere for grading. Minutes later, I can log into my computer and find out exactly how every student did with more statistics than you could ever imagine. Yet, we all still call them Scantrons. Now, is there anyone out there who's old enough to remember the purple mimeograph machines that teachers used before the photocopy machine? I have to be honest, that distinctive smell is forever planted in my memory. Well, that's it for this episode of the Useless Information Podcast. I do hope that everybody had a great Thanksgiving. I certainly did. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Additional true stories just like the one you heard can be found on my website. That's uselessinformation.org 
or einsteinsrefrigerator.com. Both will lead you to the same place. You can also find more stories in the two books written by me, Steve Silverman. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. You can like the show on Facebook. All you have to do is go to Facebook and do a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast, and it should pop up. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. You can receive automatic updates when a new episode is released. You can do that on iTunes, which most people use, or just about any other podcasting software. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I hope that you have a great holiday season. Bye.